We come tonight, Lord, with thankful hearts because we are, we are blessed men. We are favored men. We have been given so much. That is something worth pondering. How much we have been given. What have you been given that you did not receive? We were able to work today because we have the health to work. We were able to uh, interact with people over the phone because... Uh, our minds function. You've given us skills. Some of us are good with our hands. Some of us are good with words. Some of us are good reading people. Some of us are... uh, Lord, there are so many different skills, so many different gifts, so many different abilities, but they all come from you. We make a living because you have been gracious to us and given us gifts and skills so that we can earn a living and provide for our families. I think of Deuteronomy 8.18, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Some of us uh, have been uh, deathly sick and we're not tonight. We are grateful for medicines that fight conditions that could not have been even imagined 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. We are grateful for surgeons and for surgeries that give us more time on this earth from a human perspective, although from another perspective, from yours, you have set the number of our days, and that was part of your plan from the very beginning, but it's all still a gift. And when we begin to look at all that you have done for us and what you have given to us, It keeps us from complaining, it it keeps us from whining, it keeps us from being victims. In a world full of victims who are looking for handouts, we, 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 we say we're victors because of what you have done for us. And you use us in the process. Yes, you give us gifts, but then you tell us that whatever we do, do our work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom we serve. So we do our work to the best of our ability. We put our hearts into it. We do our work well because we're working for you. If we're students, we study for you. If we're welders, we make welds for you. If we're architects, we draw plans for you. But whatever it is we do, we do it unto you with thankful hearts. We are blessed men. We look around the world, we see the pain, we see the suffering. And at times it's overwhelming. We are grateful that we have heard the gospel. And I say this with all seriousness, we are grateful, Lord, that we were not born in, a, in another nation where Christianity is not known. We have heard the gospel. We have heard the truth. And you have called us. And you have brought us to yourself. We have heard the story of Jesus. And we have heard the story of the cross. And what he has done and how he has provided redemption for those of us who are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only have you given us much on this earth, but you have given us eternal life, and that will never cease. You have a plan for every guy in this room. Every guy in this room is significant. Every guy in this room You have a plan for, you have assigned us to our post, you've given us unique slots, and you use us. Even when we're not aware of the fact we're being used, we're being used. So, Father, help us to think about the foundational things. When we start comparing ourselves to others who have more, we get discouraged. But help us to compare ourselves, not to those who have more, but to those who have less. 
help us to count our blessings, as the old song says, to name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Those are, those are simple words, but they're true words. Any obstacles in our heart, any hardness, any um, resistance to the word of God, would you remove it? If, if that's in our hearts, this is a waste of time. So uh, tenderize our hearts, soften our hearts, give us teachable spirits so that we can hear what you have to say to us tonight. We thank you for your word that never returns void. It always does the work that you intended it to do. And we need that work tonight. We count on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in John 14, and we are looking at John 14, verses 1 through 6. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There are a couple more verses there we'll get to in following weeks. Uh, John 14 is a passage that you often hear when you go to a funeral. And it's appropriate. It's an appropriate passage for a funeral service. Because when we go to a funeral and, and someone has died, we need perspective and we need truth. Uh, when, when, when someone dies who we love, who we have fond affection for, a family member, a friend, uh, the words of John 14, fit. let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. It fits at a funeral. But I would say to you that John 14 has a much wider application than just at a funeral. Uh, John, what Jesus is doing in John chapter 14 is just not intended for a funeral service. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, is intended for those who are very, very much in, in, involved in living life on a daily basis. Because as we encounter life, we encounter disappointment. As we encounter life, we encounter things that uh, disappoint us. As we go through life, we, we encounter things that, uh, that we thought would never happen to us. We find ourselves in places that we thought we would never be. Somebody else, perhaps, but not us. But we're there. And, and to us, Jesus says, those of us that are living life, and living with disappointment, and living with a setback, and living with a broken heart. It might be a broken heart about uh, uh, your, your career. It just hasn't turned out the way that you thought. Or your financial position. Or, 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 or your marriage. It's just not where you had hoped it would be or what you thought it would be. It, it, you're, it's like you're on AM and she's on FM. That happens sometimes. And sometimes it happens for a long time. I, 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 it does. It just does. So what should you do in that situation? I'd divorce her. <laughs> Just leave, man. Just, I mean, you don't need that, do you? Now, you're laughing because that's not the solution. Oh, the world says that's the solution. That's not the solution. Not even close, is it? All you're going to do is screw things up. We've all got stuff. We've all got issues. We've all got the pain. We've all, you know, try as we do. We, we try to get things set up. We, we try to get our lives arranged in such a way that things are, are good and comfortable and our goals are achieved. And it, we're trying to get life in sync. And we have these expectations and we're trying to fulfill the expectations. But I'm going to tell you something something's always wrong. Something's always askew. You never quite get it right. And then sometimes there are just the tsunamis it hits. Now that's what's happened, as you know, if you've been with us, that's what's happened in John 13. In John 14, Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Why does he say that to them? Because their hearts are troubled. He has just given them 
uh, some bad news. He, he has told them that he's leaving. They don't want him to leave. They want him to stick around. I'm sure, you know, they're thinking, they're, they're, they've never met anyone like, like the Lord Jesus. And I'm sure some of them are thinking, listen, he, what, do you, what do you mean you're leaving? You, you're just getting started here. You're the Messiah. And we're under this repressive political system. And, and, and listen, we're counting on you to come in here and overturn this thing and for you to rule and reign. Well, they were right about that, but they were wrong on the timing. That wasn't the plan. It was their plan. It was their hope. It was their expectation. He has also told them in John 13 that one of them is going to betray them. He has told them that, uh, specifically Peter, you're going, to die me th- you're going to die me three times. In light of the fact that he's going away and that he's going to die, they've just been hit with, with one shot after another, and none of it is good news. None of it. Sometimes bad news comes in waves. You get hit here, you get hit here, you get hit here. It's just amazing how, how it can come uh, in threes. Bad news. I, I, nothing biblical about that. It just seems, as you observe life, sometimes you get hit one, two, three. And it knocks you over. It knocks you off your feet. And when that happens, we, we get, we get um, um, we're troubled. We're disturbed. Uh, Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? Well, different stuff happens to us. Different things go askew. We have disappointments. We have this heartache. And this is where these guys are in John 13. And in speaking to them, Jesus, Jesus says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be agitated. And then he says this. He says, believe in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, there's some weird stuff in Christianity. Um, and we've been saying this as we've been going through this. Uh, what, what Christianity is about, Christianity is about truth. Christianity is about facts. Christianity, Christianity is a thinking man's game. Christianity is a thinking man's battle. Uh, I think a lot of guys have trouble with aspects of Christianity because so much of Christianity is womanly. Is that a word? I, I, it is a word. So much of Christianity is feminized. I'm in a lot of churches around the country. I see a lot of things. I see a lot of things that I think are weird. Not too long ago, I was speaking on a Sunday morning at a church, and um, I got up to speak, and I realized I couldn't see anybody in the room. They had just prayed. The pastor had just prayed. When they were doing the worship, the lights were up. But when they had prayer, they dimmed the lights. And then I got up to preach, and, I, and I'm, I'm starting to preach, and I'm looking out, and I, something's out of whack, and I just, it was kind of a subconscious thing. And all of a sudden, I realized I can't see anybody. And I said to the light guy back there, I assumed he was back there, I couldn't see him. I said, hey, is there a light guy back there, someone that controls the light? Is there any way you could turn the lights on so I can see who's here? Now, why were the lights so low? Well, I'll tell you why, and I see this a lot. Uh, um, Something's coming to my mind. I remember another situation where they did the same thing in another church. And this church, they had candles everywhere. All on the front, they had candles, they had candles, and candles. It was, it, it was, it was dark, and there were candles. Oh, why do they do that? They're trying to set a mood. I think that's feminine, personally. We, it's dark. I can't see anybody. Um, they got candles. It's not a Catholic church. It's a Protestant church. Protestant churches don't have candles. At least historically, they don't. We don't like candles. We believe in justification by faith. This is a theological issue, this candle thing. So I get ready to speak, and it's dark. And in that one church, there are candles. Why are they doing that? They're trying to set a mood. Notice in John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Light a candle. 
turn down the light. Hey, this church I was in, these suckers did everything except bring out bubble bath. <laughs> hey, what is this? I said, hey, if there's a light guy back, can you turn the lights on? Because I can't see anybody. <laughs> I'm sure they're thinking, what do you mean he wants the lights up? He's going to break the mood. You don't need a mood. You need the word of God. You need truth. Do you not? We're not setting the mood here. This isn't a spa. You got people sitting out here whose hearts are troubled. When your heart is troubled, how the heck do you pull yourself out of trouble? You need truth. John 8, 31. If you continue in my word, churches do weird things. Not too far from my house, a couple years ago, I'm driving by a church. They got a new car out in front with a red ribbon, a big bow over it. And there was a sign that says, win this car. Given away one Sunday in June or July. And if you were there on that Sunday, I don't know how it worked because I was driving. I didn't have time to pull over and read the information. But what they were doing, they were giving away a car. They were trying to get people in by giving away a car. And that's what made me think of John 8, 31. Jesus said, if you continue in my Chevrolet, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you, I mean, it's funny, but it's sad, is it not? If you continue, not in my Chevrolet, if you continue, this isn't a casino. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you what? Free. Emotion, nothing wrong with emotion, but emotion cannot be central in your life. Once again, if you're going to live the Christian life, we're not saying that we don't have feelings. Jesus acknowledges they have feelings. Feelings, we have emotions. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed. Sometimes we get brokenhearted. Sometimes we get disappointed. Sometimes we cry because we're devastated. We're stunned. We're hurt by what's happened. We're, we don't get what's going on. So emotions are there. Jesus acknowledges emotions. But, but in our lives as Christians, emotions cannot be central. You don't live off of how you feel. I think this is why when, when there is a feminized Christianity, you know, let's dim the lights, let's put on the candles, let's pull out the bubble bath. Guys don't relate to that. We want facts. And Christianity is based, Christianity is logic on fire. That's Christianity. These guys are devastated by the news they've heard. And sometimes we hear news or we get it in waves. And what happens when all this disappointment and heartache and difficulty comes into our lives, we, it, it just knocks us off our feet and it crushes us and we're just right up against it. And all we can see is our hearts are troubled because of this, and my heart's agitated because of this and because of this. And, and what one needs to do when you're right in the middle of it, you need to step back from it. You need to step back from it and look at it from a little different perspective, from a little different angle. This is what Jesus is inviting them to do as they're hurt and disappointed and, and uh, not looking forward to the future because of what he has told them that is going to happen. Not only is Peter going to deny him three times, but they're all going to fall away. Jesus says, you're all going to fail me. Yet he still loves them. And he's still for them. And in the midst of the disappointing news, by the way, contextually, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. Is he not? Yes, he is. In a matter of hours, he will be beaten beyond recognition, spat upon. What they will do to him before he ever gets to the cross is beyond imagination. The suffering that he will go through in his body. And then he will go to that cross. And he will die for your sin and for my sin, the sin of the whole world. It will all be upon him. We cannot imagine the weight that was upon him. And the wrath that I deserve, the wrath that you deserve, was put not on us, it was put on him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was all poured on him, the wrath of the Father. 
That's all coming. It's all coming to him in, in, within hours. And in the midst of that, he's concerned about not what he's going through, but what they're dealing with. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. And then what does he give them? He says, believe in God. Believe in me. They're right here with their stuff. And when he says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God. See, you're looking right here what I've just told you. The news you didn't want to hear. But you've got to step back. How, how, do you, how do you repair a troubled heart? You've got to get perspective. Believe in God. You say, what, what's going on in my life? Well, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen just like I told you. This is all going to happen. But look it. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Gentlemen, uh, Christianity is about facts. When he says believe in God, what he's saying to them is, I want you to think about the facts of God. In the midst of this bad news, what is true about God? Believe in those facts. Believe also in me. Um, for some reason, it's important now in football to have a sideline reporter who's a woman. I don't quite get that. And you've all seen it. You've seen it a hundred times now. It's the end of the half, and the coach is behind. He's down 38 nothing. I mean, his guys have been humiliated. And he's walking off the field, and let's, let's go down to, you know, foo-foo on the sidelines here. And she says, Coach, you're down 38 to nothing. I said, how do you feel? <laughs> what? And you know, you know what the guy wants to do. <laughs> and you know what the guy wants to say, but he makes seven million a year and he's not giving that up, so he gives her some kind of answer, but it's like. Now this happened two weeks ago in a playoff game. They didn't have one sideline reporter, they had two. They had the woman and then they had a guy. Usually when the, when the coach goes off, it's, there's just one interview. And the gal sticks the mic in his face and, you know, how, do you, how did you feel? Um, as soon as she talked to the coach, she said, let's go over to Chris on the other sideline. Chris says, coach, that last drive, you had a third and 19, you called the draw play. Why did you do that? Is that a different approach? He's not, he's not dealing with feelings, he's dealing with facts. That last drive, coach, you had a third and 19, you called a draw play, and it went for two yards. Why would you do such an idiotic thing? <laughs> I mean, that was the implication. Do you see the difference? Women are very relational, and that's great. I mean, that's the, the glue. They keep everyone going, you know? I mean, every, they check in. I, I, I'm not putting them down. I'm not saying women don't think, but I'm saying God's wired us differently, and a lot of times things that appeal to women in Christianity, so much of Christianity is feminized. And guys don't relate to it. Guys don't relate necessarily to the mood and to the camp. Give me truth. Give me facts. Why should, I don't need this stuff. I need something I can live off of. When my boys were in school, every once in a while I'd get a note from a teacher. Um, I remember getting the note, Josh won't sit still in class. And I'm thinking, so? <laughs> now, I'm being honest with you. Now, if the note had said, Josh is disobedient, oh, we got an issue. Because we don't do that. Here's another, Josh is disrespectful, we got another issue. Because you know what? You're not going to be disobedient, you're not going to be disrespectful. But when I get a note that says, Josh won't sit still in class, my response is, what do you want him to do? The kid's eight years old. Eight-year-old boys weren't designed to sit in class for eight hours and sit still. Were they? I have a theory. It's just an opinion, not from the Bible. <laughs> but the theory is, and I, and I think there's some merit to it, is that public schools are designed not for little boys but for little girls. Little boys weren't designed to sit still. Now, little girls can sit there for eight hours, and they pay attention, and they take notes, and they remember. 
and they do their homework, and you don't have to ask them, and they do it right the first time. Little boys are all over the map. Are little boys supposed to sit behind a desk for eight hours a day in a public school system and not move? No. Little boys are not supposed to be running around, going through creeks, fishing, uh, you know, setting fire to cats, whatever little boys do. <laughs> because they're little boys. Little boys are supposed to climb up 40-foot oak trees and just jump. <laughs> right? It's little boys. But you see, you can't have that in school. By the way, how many uh, of you in elementary school had, uh, had a male teacher, anywhere from kindergarten to sixth grade? If you did, a few of you, but not many of you. And if you did, it was probably one year. Uh, 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 hey, I'm all for male elementary schools because little boys need to see men. But to me, it's a feminized system. The church, in many cases, has been feminized. Oftentimes, I'm asked as I go around the country, hey, what's the secret to a strong men's ministry? You know what I always say? A strong masculine pastor. You want to have a men's ministry? Get a masculine pastor. Quite frankly. Because masculine guys like masculine guys. And they'll follow that guy. And he, and he intuitively knows what men need. But if you've got a pastor that's not masculine, and personally who's feminized and has been raised primarily by women, it's going to be a feminized congregation, and a lot of guys aren't going to relate to it. Now, that's just a fact of the matter. So what do we do with little boys that won't sit still? Well, you need to, let's take him to the counselor. So you go to the counselor, and why won't he sit still? He's a boy. He's got testosterone. Well, maybe we ought to refer you to a psychologist. And it's like, no, let's go to a psychiatrist. And so what are they going to do? Let's put him on drugs. Hey, I want to tell you something. A lot of Christianity stuff you don't relate to, I don't relate to. I'm going to tell you something. You'd love Jesus if you could have been with him when he was given the Sermon on the Mount. You'd love him, wouldn't you? And he's the model of masculinity. He's the God-man. He's the creator. You know that he created men and he loves men? He loves men. He understands men. He gets men. The guys hanging out with him are men. They're distraught. They're disturbed. Their whole world's been turned up, uh, upside down. And what does he say to them? You know what he says to them? He says, let not your heart be agitated. Don't let your heart be troubled. Here, hey, 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 hey. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I uh, have been rereading David Wells' excellent book, The Courage to be Protestant. By the way, the reason it's called Protestant term's not used much anymore. It comes from the days of the Reformation when Martin Luther protested against the Roman Catholic Church, who did not stand for the gospel for justification by faith. But you could buy your way into heaven. If you gave money, you could get people out of purgatory. Purgatory doesn't exist. There's heaven and there's hell. But nevertheless, it's what was going on back then, and he protested. He hammered his uh, 96 theses into the door, the church door at Wittenberg, and the whole world was turned upside down. So we are Protestants. We protested that system, and we were based on the word of God, alone, alone. Roman Catholic Church is based on, um, on tradition and the Bible, and tradition trumps Bible. We are based on God's word alone. In his book, The Courage to be Protestant, and I read this section to you a couple years ago. David Wells, who is a, a brilliant thinker, has a section that he calls From Virtues to Values. And then the next section is, because there's a change from virtues to values, then there is a change from character to personality. Now stay with me and listen, listen to what he has to say because it all has to do with what Jesus says in John 14, 1. And let me set it up this way. When Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be agitated, believe in God, believe also in me. Here's my question. When he said that, believe also in me, why should I believe in him? Why? It's a great question. Why should I believe what he says? When I was in college, I was in a restaurant 
and uh, there was a, a disturbance by the cash register, and obviously something was amiss, and suddenly this man kind of broke free, and he yelled out to everybody in the restaurant. He said, I am, I am the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the Son of God. You can bow down and worship me right now. And people all over the room fell to their faces. Uh, nobody fell to their face. Well, why not? They didn't believe him. You know why they didn't believe him? He didn't have the character that warranted belief. Now listen to what Wells has to say. Stay with me here. Wells says, the shift from virtues to values may not be, and he's talking about where we were 100 years ago, roughly. The shift from virtues to values may not be as apparent as it should be because of our language. For we use these two words interchangeably. We sometimes speak of moral values and have in mind what I have here by virtues. Let me clarify. Virtues, as I am thinking of them, are aspects of the good or, or of virtue, and good is capitalized. They are moral terms that are enduringly right for all people in all places and all times. It is true, of course, that there has been debate about what these virtues are. And then he makes the point that the virtues are based on Scripture. Then he says this, To speak of virtue, then, is to speak of the moral structure of the world that God has made. Rebellious though we are, we have not broken down this structure, nor dislodge God from maintaining it. It stands there over against us, whether we recognize it or not. We bump up against it in the course of life, and we encounter its reflection in our own moral makeup. And from all sides, a message is conveyed to our consciousness, beware, this is a moral world that you inhabit. Like it or not, this is a moral world. There, there are ten commandments. Then he says this, character is about this Character is about the way this moral world becomes embedded in our nature. This does not mean that those who are honest, truthful, compassionate, and considerate are, for those reasons, providing a basis of their acceptance before God, because they are not. However, in the eyes of God, it is surely better to be honest than to be dishonest, to be truthful than to be a liar, to be compassionate than merciless, and considerate rather than thoughtless. And it is certainly better for societies when people behave morally than when immorality and what is unethical triumph. That is why society has placed a premium on good character until relatively recently. Whatever else might be said about it, it is a society's means of self-defense. Indeed, in the 19th century letters of recommendation were typically character references, and they were carried around by the recipients and read with satisfaction. I talked to a guy today uh, about a situation occurring somewhere else involves a certain individual and I was making a call because someone had called me and he said this was a guy I warned him three years ago because he worked for me and he stole from me now I said I'm not gonna put that down on paper but that's what he did and they didn't heed what I told them and now they're paying, reaping the benefits of it in other words, he could, we're so screwed up that he cannot give a character reference or lack of because we live in a litigious society. Letters of this kind today, especially if, they make unhappy, especially if they make unhappy observations on the person's character, might invite a lawsuit. Today, though, we are less interested in a potential employee's character than we are in his or her competence. In a complex, highly competitive, technological, bottom-line-driven world, competence trumps character. Character is nice, but competence is profitable. That is, at least, what we think. This loss of character has become so large an issue in our nation that many business schools and medical schools have hurriedly had to reintroduce courses in ethics. However, courses in ethics, even if well-taught, are but band-aids to those who, in their inner lives, no longer inhabit a moral universe. And that is where the vast number of people in the West are. They have vacated the older moral world. The great majority, two-thirds, say they do not believe in moral absolutes, that moral decisions are a matter of negotiation in each given set of circumstances. Still with me? Is this making sense? This ties into John 14, 1. I'll show you in a minute. That is the context in which virtues have been converted into values. 
Values as we speak of them today are a relatively new idea. In 1928, the multi-volume Oxford English Dictionary, which had been under construction since 1882 and had accumulated the meanings of close to half a million words, had no entry for the word values. Values is a word in, lady, in, in later 20th century talk in the West. Once we left behind the moral world, we had no option but to treat values in a value-free way. Because what is right for one is not necessarily right for another. As the older moral world has faded, then its virtues have faded with it. In the twilight of its dissolution, we are left with values. Now he moves. Now watch how this affects something. Now he moves to a section called From Character to Personality. When we think of today as the self, rather what we think of today as the self, a kind of internal center into which all our experiences flow and get sorted out, has been thought about as something separate from character only quite recently. For centuries in the West, we have thought about our consciousness, the self, only in conjunction with nature and indeed with character. This center was thought about in terms of virtues to be learned and desires to be denied. Virtues were all sustained by a belief in moral law, be it natural or revealed in Scripture, or perhaps just generally assumed. Watch this. As the 20th century dawn, Warren Sussman observed in his book, Culture is History, the great change that was underway. The words that had peppered the advice manuals of an earlier generation, words that came out of a moral world, were, were disappearing. These were words like duty, golden deeds, morals, manners, honor citizenship and reputation. As the new century began, a different set of interests came into view. They were signaled by the prominence in the advice manuals of words like fascinating, stunning, attractive, glowing, masterful, creative, dominant, forceful. The words most common earlier had been words of character. These new words were words of personality. Character is not fascinating, glowing, or masterful. By the same token, personality is not dutiful, honorable, or full of golden deeds. Character is good or bad. Personality is attractive, forceful, or magnetic. Here is a move out of the older moral world where our internal moral intentions were important to a different world. This is a psychological world. It is a shift from what is important in itself to how it appears to others. God may judge the heart, but our preoccupation is with the outward appearance that, after all, is what others see. In a society where affluence is important and ethical norms are disappearing, success is paramount and character is not. Our preoccupation, therefore, is how we come off before others. Next section is called self-marketing. The result of this shift is that today people engage in selling themselves. Personalities are marketable commodities, but character is not. People who pitch products on television are pitching their personalities, not their character. Image is reality. Impressions are as important as achievements. And appearance is about performance. I'm almost done. In these and many other ways, people sought to create impressions of themselves for reasons of personal gain, false as they may be. In the older moral world that was fast receding, these would have been seen as lies. In this new therapeutic world, they are more likely seen as strategies than as lies. If things go wrong, if things don't add up, the shame is not in the attempt at creating a false impression, but in being caught. In our commercialized world, we rarely believe sales pitches, so why would we feel outraged when people exaggerate accomplishments, falsify claims, puff and project themselves personally? An overwhelming proportion of Americans, 70%, believe that they have been lied to consistently by politicians. Britons feel the same way. So, is this not something we are accustomed to and automatically discount? Last paragraph. Perhaps. But the art of lying has been taken to such a high level, is being done so proficiently, with such extraordinary sophistication, that it has become virtually impossible to separate the truth from lies in politics, the news, or the marketplace. We have come to expect no other world than one of grays, a world where there are no whites and no blacks, ethically speaking. We have learned to discount every claim and to distrust every assertion. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Really. 
What does that have to do with John 14, 1? Uh, it, it struck me this week that 40 years ago, uh, 39 and a half years ago, I was in a uh, class in college, my senior year, uh, a class um, called Senior Persuasive Speaking. And there were only about 10, maybe 12 people in the class. Uh, a, a really good professor, guy was sharp. He really knew his stuff. And he was teaching us to give speeches that would persuade. Our final, here was the final. The final was you had to give a 10-minute speech. And your grade was based on how successfully you persuaded people. The way it worked, you came in to give your speech. Uh, everyone was given an uh, evaluation sheet. And you would walk in, and you would write your premise on the blackboard. Uh, they had a list of numbers from minus 10 to plus 10. And when you wrote your premise on the board, they would go from minus 10 to plus 10, indicating to what degree they agreed with the premise. Then you would give your speech to persuade. At the bottom was another line of the same numbers. And then after giving your speech, they would then indicate where they were after hearing you, and then the comparison was made where they were before you gave the speech and where they were after, and you would look at the differentiation between numbers to see if you had persuaded them. I walked in, and I wrote on the blackboard to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I didn't get any applause. And all over the room, people are going minus 10, minus 10, minus 10, minus 10, minus 10, minus 10, minus 10. Um, hey, where's my book? Oh, there it is. Um, now, how do you in 10 minutes do a persuasive speech to prove that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I plagiarized. <laughs> I'm 20 years old. You know, there's, a, there's a, a rule in academia that if you borrow from one source, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from many, it's research. <laughs> well, I've been reading this little book by John Stott called Basic Christianity. I had a young gal ask me last week, fairly new Christian. She said, hey, Steve, I, I want to get more into, I want to find out more about Christianity. She said, you got any suggestions? I said, yeah, Basic Christianity by John Stott. She went out and got it. I was reading this thing 40 years ago. Now, I'll tell you what I plagiarized. Oh, and by the way, I'll go ahead and tell you this. Everyone put down their initial response to my assertion, proved that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, when it's over, they all hand in their sheets. And so you could compare. And the professor would look at him, and he would add up. If someone was a minus 10, did you get them to minus 4? Did you, what would you do? It, it turned out, of the 10 or 12 students in the class, I had moved them further than anyone else. I had the highest total of points. Uh, I just say that because I'm insecure, and I want you to think I'm brilliant. <laughs> now, let me say this to you. That had absolutely nothing to do with me. What I did was, I took John Stott's chapter. You know the title of the chapter? The Character of Christ. Not the personality of Christ. The Character of Christ. And then it breaks up into three sections. Number one, what Christ himself thought about himself. Number two, what Christ's friends said about him. They were with him for three years. You're with somebody for three years, you know their character, don't you? And then thirdly, what his enemies said about him. And I'm going to tell you something. I only had 10 minutes, and I took everything. And, and this, this thing that Stodd wrote is brilliant. And I condensed this, and I put it down, and I memorized it. I, memor I don't memorize stuff normally, speeches. I don't do that. But this I memorized because it had to be tight. And if you went over 10 minutes, you got docked. And I must have done this 10, 15 times, maybe 20. And I had it down. I'll never forget, I'll never forget the professor who was a tough grader. I'll never forget his sheet. He had all these comments. But at the top, when I was done, he said, 
your logic was impeccable. And let's just say that it wasn't my logic. It was John Stott's that came directly from the Word of God. Christian, what, what was impeccable? Your logic. Because you see, the Word of God is logical. It's logical. Christianity is a thinking man's game. I'm not going to go through all that. Just think about, what was the third thing I said? The character, it's about the character of Christ. That, that man that came into that restaurant and yelled out, I'm Jesus Christ and you can fall down and worship me. How come nobody did? We didn't believe he was Christ. Why? He didn't have the character. He was nuts. He was crazy. He was loony. There's no character there. You don't believe people without any character. Who did Jesus say that he was? What did his friends think about him? What did his enemies? Remember, you remember when Jesus was on the cross and there was a centurion standing by? And when Jesus died, he said, surely this, this guy was hard, tough, centurion. How many executions, how many crucifixions had he been a part of? He'd seen it all. Guy had to have a hard heart. He's a Roman pagan. And he was so moved. Why was he moved by Jesus? Because even when Jesus was in agony, the, the, the guy on the cross, one of them says, oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in prayer. Even in the midst of agony, Jesus was focused not on himself, but on somebody else. That's character. And what did the centurion say, his enemy? Surely this man was the son of God because of his character. Why should we believe Jesus? Are you guys following me? Are you in John 14, 1? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? You know, it's interesting. In, in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs or seven miracles. You can do a little work on a commentary, and you'll find in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus did that demonstrated that he was God, that he was who he said he was. Um, Jesus claimed to be God. To be God. In, in John chapter 1, verse 1. Flip over to John 1 real quick. It's important to know that Jesus claimed to be God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, well, who's the Word? We'll look down at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. It's speaking of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. He claimed to be God. It, so you had seven signs. You had seven miracles that Jesus did. They were miracles. The first miracle that Jesus did was at Cana. There was a wedding, and he turned the water into what? Wine. His first sign. Uh, the, the vessels were full full of the water. I said, hey, we thought, the, why are you bringing the best wine out last? It's the first miracle Jesus did. You have seven signs in the Gospel of John. You also have seven statements in John where Jesus said, where Jesus says, I am. I am. And these are, these are phenomenal statements. In John 8, turn over there real quick. I want to show you something in John 8. There's a statement that Jesus makes, and the Pharisees hated him. They hated him. Jesus would do these miracles, and, and do you know what? Jesus loved to do miracles on the Sabbath on purpose. When you read your New Testament, when you read your Gospels, notice how many times it will, it will say, it was on the Sabbath and there was a man with a withered hand. Jesus loved those moments. Because those, those, those bureaucratic, religious, um, whitewashed sepulchers were hanging around looking to see if he was going to do a miracle. He's going to change somebody's life on the Sabbath.
So they're into this, you know, they're coming after him. Uh, John 8, 48. If you look at, I love 44. I love 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? I mean, he went after these suckers. Did he not? This is not a feminized Christ, is it? Now, did he go after everybody this way? No. But when he runs into the hard guys, when he runs into the bureaucrats, he just goes after them. Could Jesus be kind? Yes. But you don't always, there, there are situations where somebody's got to speak truth aggressively. Do you do that every day of your life in every situation? No, because it's not appropriate. In this situation, he comes on strong. He's aggressive. Now, now then they start saying, you know, they've said that he has a demon and all of this. And he says in 51, he says, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died the prophets also and you say if anyone keeps my word he will never taste of death surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died the prophets died too whom do you make yourself out to be Jesus answered if I glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God and you have not come to know him but I know him and I say that and if I say that I do not know him I will be a liar like you but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and yet you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Next verse. They picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to kill him. Why? He had made himself to be God. When he said, I am, that's right out of Exodus 3.14. Remove your shoes. You're on holy ground. Moses said, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. It was God's name. He's saying, I am God. Now, there are, there are seven other statements in John where he says, I am. I want to show them to you. John 6, 35. Guys, here's what I want you to get. He made these statements. He made these claims. These are astonishing claims. See, here's where, look, at here. this is what I want you to get tonight. This stuff's either true or it isn't. This isn't a feeling, you know, good, get the bubble bath, get the soft music going. It's either true or it isn't. He says in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, you cannot exist without me. By the way, your physical food, where does it come from? It comes from God Almighty. Read Psalm 104. Read the process that is described in Psalm 104, how God sends rain upon the earth, how God causes the grass to grow. The young lions roam about at night seeking their food. If God doesn't feed them, they don't eat. The whole creation is dependent upon him. If cattle don't have water, if cattle don't have grain, if they don't have grass, then cattle die, and then we can't slaughter cattle to eat cheeseburgers at our house. Physical food comes from God. Rain comes from God. Bread comes from God. But man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, he, he ensures our physical existence, but he also ensures our spiritual existence. He says, I am the bread of life. You want life? You come to me. What did he say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's either true or it isn't. But what does he say? He says, I am. Now that's either true or it isn't. He's either the creator or he isn't. How am I doing, Lou? Did you give me 15? Oh, no. Number two, John, uh, John 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Why is that so important? Because this is a dark world. This is an incredibly dark world. It's a world full of sin. Your heart is dark. Your heart is evil. Your heart is wicked. I was talking with a guy earlier this week who was in a real depression, having really some real anxiety and worry and 
was starting to question his faith and if he was even a Christian. And he was really kind of panicking. And we're just talking. And I said, why are you so panicked? He said, well, I look in my own heart and there's just, I, I don't, I'm not sure even about my motivations, why I'm even following God. I'm not sure my motivations are pure. And I said, well, they're not pure. He said, what, they're not pure? I said, no, they're not pure. He said, how do you know that? Because the heart is desperately sick and wicked. We're never pure. Our motivation is never right. But you know what? That, that, that verse says, uh, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? You, you don't waste your time trying to figure out your motivation. Just love the Lord, and you know, well, am I 80% pure, or just 20% wrong motivation? Forget that stuff. You don't know your own heart. He knows it. Right? He's so full of mercy and grace and loving kindness. Don't get into that Martin Luther thing that Luther was in before he understood justification by faith. He was trying to go into his own heart and pull out every sin and every motivation and examine it and, and get forgiveness and do penance. Forget that stuff. We're washed in the blood of Christ. Are we not? If, you confess, if we confess our sins that you know about, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Why do you think I'm in this? Why do you I said, let me ask you, where do you think this comes from? You think Jesus is doing this? You think he's accusing you? Jesus doesn't accuse you. Well, how do you know that? Because there's no condemn, therefore there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation comes from the devil. Who is the devil? He's the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing you. And didn't you tell me last week about a hymn that you just found, an old hymn that was one of your favorites? And you told me the first line of the hymn, hymn. what was that first line? He says, when Satan drives me to despair. I said, where are you? You're in darkness, man. What you need is to come into the light. He said, I'm afraid I won't get married. because, And I'd like to be married, but I'm afraid my motivation is wrong. I'm very lonely. I said, you're very lonely? He said, yeah. I said, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Oh, that's right. What's wrong with not wanting to be alone? God said it's not good. See, we get all screwed up, don't we? See, when you get into your heart, you don't get in, don't start just, you're screwed up, man. I'm screwed up. But Jesus delivers us from ourselves. You can relax. Hey, he's for you. He's on your team. See, he brings the light. Man, I got to move. He's the bread. Of, he says, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. John 10. What's the, we don't know about that. What's the sheep thing? He's the door for the sheep. To get in the sheepfold, you got to go in the door. You know what Jesus said? He said, I am the door. I am the way. You enter in through Christ. John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. You know, over 200 times in the Bible, God calls us sheep. You throw in lambs, it's 200 times. You know why God calls us sheep you know, 200 times? Three things about sheep. Sheep are stupid. Sheep are dirty. Sheep are defenseless. Sheep are stupid. They're stupid animals. You go to Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus, you'll never see them train sheep. <laughs> Why? They're stupid. And what does God call me? He calls me a what? A sheep. I've got enough hours in stupid to get a PhD. I could teach stupid at a graduate level. And so could you. But see, Jesus is the shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He, you know what he does? He forgives me not only sin, but he forgives me as stupid. And he navigates me through life. He said, in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. My dad died a year ago today. So it was a year ago yesterday that I was in that hotel, uh, the hospital room with my dad. And we were taking shifts and he was in a coma. And uh, I was just there, in there by myself with Dad. And some of you guys heard me say this last year, but I was thinking about it today. And at one point, and I just assumed Dad could hear me. And at one point I said to him, I said, you know, Dad, listen. We got Mom covered. You just go on. You just go ahead and let go, and you go to be with Jesus. 
10, 12 hours later, he was with the Lord. That's where he wanted to be. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, great English preacher. He's dying of cancer. They pull the family together. He can't even speak. They bring them all in. It's getting down to the end. And as they're coming around, he, he, he goes like this. He wants a pen and paper. He, start, he scribbles. Gives it to his daughter. She reads it out loud. It says, do not pray for my healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. Don't you dare pray that God will heal me. I want to go. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he, what? Live. Live. It's either true or it isn't. And because of his character, they believed him. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, John 15, 5, I am the true vine. Oh, by the way, you know what? John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't breathe without him. You can't function without him. You can't hold a job without him. You can't keep a relation. You, without, apart from him, you can do nothing. I want to read a section to you as I finish from Stott. Brilliant. About what Jesus, about the character of Jesus, listen to this. When Jesus, contextually, when he took on the Pharisees, Stott says they were all sinners. He was without sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father's will. I always do, he said, what is pleasing to him. There was nothing boastful about those words. He spoke naturally with neither fuss nor pretension. Similarly, by the very nature of his teaching, watch this, he placed himself in a moral category by himself. So indeed did the Pharisee in the temple in his arrogant thanksgiving, God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of men. But Jesus assumed his uniqueness unself-consciously. He did not need to draw attention to it. It was a fact so obvious to him that it hardly required emphasis. It was implied rather than asserted. All other men were lost sheep. He had come as the good shepherd to seek and to save them. All other men were sick with the disease of sin. He was the doctor who had come to heal them. All other men were plunged in the darkness of sin and ignorance. He was the light of the world. All other men were sinners. He was born to be their savior and would shed his blood and death for the forgiveness of their sins. All other men were hungry. He was the bread of life. All other men were dead in trespasses and sin. He could be their life now and their resurrection hereafter. All these metaphors express the moral uniqueness of which he was conscious. It is not surprising, therefore, that although we were told of the temptations of Jesus, we hear nothing of his sins, except in the Da Vinci Code, which is blasphemy. He never confesses his sins or asks for forgiveness, although he tells his disciples to do so. He shows no consciousness of moral failure. He appears to have no feelings of guilt and no sense of estrangement from God. This absence of all moral discontent and this sense of unclouded fellowship with God are particularly remar remarkable for two reasons. The first is that, stay with me, the first is that Jesus possessed a keen moral judgment. He knew what was in man. Often it is recorded of him in the gospel narratives that he read the inner questionings and perplexities of the crowd. His clear perception led him fearlessly to expose the duplicity of the Pharisees. He hated their hypocrisy. He pronounced woes upon them as thunderous as those of the Old Testament prophets. Ostentation and pretense were an abomination to him, yet his penetrating eye saw no sin in himself. The second reason why his self-conscious purity is astonishing is that it is utterly unlike the experience of all saints and mystics. The Christian knows that the nearer he approaches God, the more he becomes aware of his own sin. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah 6, high and mighty lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they flew, two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, and they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty. What did Isaiah say? I am a man of what? Unclean lips. When you're in the presence of a holy God, you're aware of your sin. The greatest saint, not Jesus, because he's God. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That'll calm your heart, no matter where you are. Thank you, Father, for the greatness of Jesus. Help us to think. Help us to ponder. We look at his character. It all adds up. Without question, he was who he said he was. John said, there were other signs that Jesus did. And if they were all recorded, all the books in the world could not hold them. And John said, I, I write these things that you might believe that he is the Son of God. We believe his character, we believe his works. And because we believe and because it's true, our hearts are calmed. No matter what we face tomorrow. Because he holds tomorrow and he rules tomorrow. And he will make a way. In his name we pray. Amen.